0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called True Grace for Real Sin: The Message of Paul to the Galatians. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 6th, 2010. The collected works of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther number about 60 volumes. The man could write. Luther's phenomenal capacity to write met the voracious appetite of a newly literate reading public. In Luther's day, you'll recall, the printing press was the great force multiplier that had mechanized mass book production for the first time. Consider just one example. In his book, The Reformation, from the year 2003, Diarmade McCullough observes that there were 390 editions of various of Luther's writings published in Germany in 1523 alone, a single year. Amongst this massive output, Luther had his favorites. His favorite book of the Bible was the Epistle for this week, the Epistle to the Galatians is my epistle, wrote Luther. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. Years later, when a friend was editing the Latin edition of what would eventually become those sixty volumes of his collected works, Luther made a suggestion. If I had my way about it, he said, they would republish only those of my books which have doctrine. My Galatians, for instance. My Galatians refers to Luther's commentary on the Epistle. The little letter to the Galatians, just six chapters in ten pages, provoked from Luther's prolific pen a monster commentary that in one edition ran to 733 pages. Why such prolixity? What was so important about Galatians to Luther? Many scholars even judge that his Galatians commentary is one of the most formative books in the history of Protestantism. How so? Luther locked on to Galatians for an important reason. In Galatians, Paul makes an impassioned and uncompromising defense of the radical grace of God. In Galatians, Paul boldly defends this singular gospel of free grace, against any and every other different Gospel, which different Gospels Paul dismisses as quote-unquote no Gospel at all, chapter one, six, and seven. To understand and experience the Gospel of Galatians, says Paul, is to enter into the very heart of what God did in Christ, whereas to lose or pervert that Gospel is a spiritual disaster. And that's what was happening in Galatia. This was a deeply personal and intensely practical matter for Luther. He had struggled all his life to please God, and he did what many of us do today. He tried to earn God's favor, in his case as an overly scrupulous monk. But that only led Luther to despair anxiety into the wonderful German word Unfechtungen. Unfechtungen is hard to translate but easy to appreciate. It's what Martin Marty calls the spiritual assaults that Luther said kept people from finding certainty in a loving God. Instead of trying to earn God's favor, says Marty, Luther insists that God in Christ says to us, I am more certain to you than your own heart and conscience. That's the personal antidote to despair that Luther found in Galatians. Luther also identified a crucial theological question in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul tackles a simple question that has profound implications. It was a question that troubled the early church. Did a Gentile who wanted to be a Christian have to live like a Jew? Did Gentiles have to follow the Mosaic law? And if so, how much or how little? Today we grapple with the opposite question, whether a Jew must convert to Christianity to enjoy God's favor. But Jesus was a Jew, Paul was a zealous Hebrew of Hebrews, and for its first few decades the early church was effectively a Jewish sect. So what about Gentiles who wanted to follow Jesus? Did they have to become Jews? Some early believers said yes. They argued that Gentiles must obey the 631 Mosaic commandments, and in particular certain dietary laws and the ritual of circumcision. Even the apostle Peter succumbed to hypocrisy on this matter. In Acts 11, we read how Peter had a vision that convinced him that God accepted both Jews and Gentiles without any favoritism. But later, Paul writes in Galatians, certain men came from James and convinced Peter to separate himself from eating with Gentiles. Even Barnabas was led astray, writes Paul in Galatians 2.13. Paul was aghast. He rebuked Peter in public for compromising the free grace of God. He writes in chapter 2, 15, and 16, We who are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Christians should thus live with a radical sense of freedom before God, says Paul, knowing that our relationship with him is based not on our performance, but on his love. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Chapter 5, verse 1. To seek to justify yourself before God is chasing the wind. Rather, we're free to accept our fragile selves just like God does. Perhaps you have heard of the aphorism, to sin boldly. This actually comes from a letter that Luther wrote to his younger protege, Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was super scrupulous and anxious about God's grace Luther rebuked him for such anxiety about trying to merit God's favor. Luther wrote, If you are a preacher of grace, then preach true grace and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. So be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. True grace forgives real sins, says Luther, and not just polite or acceptable sins. Even with our own deep sense of sin, frailty, and failure, Grace liberates us to live fully and freely, with candor and honesty, but without obsession or anxiety. This message is no mere human invention, says Paul in Galatians 1.11. It's not some cleverly invented tale, says Peter in 2 Peter 1.16. No, it's divinely good news, which Paul says we should never ever compromise. And now for further reflection, for a biography of Luther, see Martin Marty's book, Martin Luther, New York Penguin, 2004. Consider the words of Paul Tillich, you are accepted, you are accepted by that which is greater than you, in the name of which you don't know. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens, we experience grace. Or consider the words of Donald McCullough Grace tells us that we are accepted just as we are. We may not be the kind of people we want to be. We may be a long way from our goals. We may have more failures than achievements but we are nonetheless accepted by God and held in his hands. Such is his promise to us in Jesus Christ, a promise we can trust. For books this week, I review Jonathan Mailsick. The title of the book, Secret Faith in the Public Square, an argument for the concealment of Christian identity. Grand Rapids Brazos Press 2009 248 pages Jonathan Mailsick's technical monograph commends a simple theme from Scripture. We read in Matthew chapter 6 1 and 6 beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you." Like many theologians, Maelsick laments the enormous damage done to the faith by its putative success in society. For many American believers, for example, faith is a form of currency political currency economic or social inc- currency by which we accrue personal benefits think of a politician who makes sure that voters know that he attends church melsick's response to this problem is entirely counterintuitive he tries to show how deliberate secrecy about one's faith is a real though underemphasized theme in christian theological Liturgical and spiritual tradition. To save our faith, we must veil it from others. Mielsik has in mind Christianity in America, and especially the bourgeoisie and cosmopolitan evangelicals who enjoy and strive for social privileges by wearing faith on their sleeves. Only by a return to secrecy, by which Maelsick means intentional concealment of knowledge from another person, can American Christianity be saved from its opportunistic impulse to exploit the gospel for social gain. In the first part of his book, Maelsick devotes two chapters each to three Christian intellectuals who commend Christian secrecy. Cyril of Jerusalem's catechetical Catechetical practices withheld knowledge of the sacraments until after baptism. Kierkegaard's book, Works of Love, argues that genuinely selfless acts must be hidden in order to avoid the quid pro quo of praise. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the Christian cause will be a silent and hidden affair. Having shown through these three theologians that concealing one's identity is not an isolated tradition, in the second part of his book, Melsic explains what secrecy about Christian identity in the public life of contemporary America would mean. Successive chapters explore the nature of the self that keeps secrets, churches as communities that conceal even as they evangelize, and then a pointed rejection of the project by Stanley Hauer was to make Christianity as distinctly visible as possible. In his historical section, Maelsick's treatment sometimes feels like a fishing expedition. He has a thesis to prove, and he's intent on finding it in Cyril, Kierkegaard, and Bonhoeffer. By his own account, Cyril used secrecy to consolidate political power which seems like a strange example to commend. I would have enjoyed more interaction with the New Testament themes on this subject. He also admits that this book presupposes an attitude of suspicion. And even though his suspicions are often well-founded, sometimes his arguments felt like ad hominem attacks. Not every believer prostitutes the faith for career advancement an open witness can often leave not to gain but to loss finally i would love to learn from mailsick about real believers and communities that are putting his advice into practice mailsick's book reminded me of the powerful poem by emily dickinson called tell it slant tell all the truth but tell it slant Success in circuit lies. Too bright for mind's infirm intent, the truth's superb, superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. This highly technical book isn't written for a general readership. And his thesis is not only counterintuitive, but controversial. But I was genuinely intrigued by Maelsick's proposal. I hope it gets the consideration it deserves from the Guild, and that it finds its place among the ordinary faithful. The title of the book, Secret Faith in the Public Square, An Argument for the Concealment of Christian Identity, The author is Jonathan Mailsick. For film this week, I review review a movie called Ballast from the year 2008. Ballast is a device used to control stability. Instability is exactly what a black family in the Mississippi Delta searches for in this drama. Lawrence is a convenience store owner who is reduced to a silent hulk of a man when his identical twin brother and business partner is killed in a tragic accident. His brother's widow, Marley, deeply loves her young son, James, but James has quit school and is stealing from both his uncle and mother to buy drugs from thugs. The mother, Marley, is a fiercely independent woman, but she's fired from her job, which forces her to deal again with her estranged brother-in-law, Lawrence. Ballast has won numerous international awards, including two from Sundance for directing and cinematography, and a third nomination for Grand Jury Prize. The rural isolation and deep poverty of the Delta makes for stark cinematography, but I found this a rather slow-moving narrative with a deeply unsatisfying and abrupt end. But the use of handheld cameras and non-professional actors lend this film a feeling for the real problems of real people in forgotten places. The title of the movie is Ballast from the year 2008. And finally for this week, we continue our series of poems by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972. He has a series of 11 addresses to the Lord. This week, we post the second 11 addresses to the Lord. Holy, as I suppose I dare to call you, without pretending to know anything about you, but infinite capacity everywhere and always, and in particular, certain goodness to me. Yours is the crumpling to my sister-in-law terrifying thunder. Yours, the candelabra buds sticky in spring. Christ's mercy, the gloomy wisdom of godless Freud. Yours, the lost souls in ill-attended wards those agonized through the world at this to- instant of time, all evil men. Belson, Omaha Beach. Incomprehensible to man your ways. Maybe the devil, after all, exists. I don't try to reconcile anything, said the poet at 80. This is a damned, strange world. Man is ruining the pleasant earth and man. What, at last, my Lord, will you allow? Postpone till after my children's deaths your doom, if it be thy inevitable, inevitable will. I say, thy kingdom come, it means nothing to me. Hast thou prepared astonishments for man, one sudden coming? Many so believe, So not without knowing anything do I. 11 Addresses to the Lord, number 2, by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 6th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.